Hi, I'm Paula Joy and welcome to the IKEA podcast. This episode discusses opportunities around the future of design. The discussion brings together leaders across interior design, sustainability and innovation to explore design-led approaches to creating better homes and communities for the future. Tiffany Buckins, IKEA Australia Head of Interior Design, Mr Jason Grant, author, interior and prop stylist, Dr Taya Brezhnev, Professor of Spatial Theory at University of Technology, Sydney, and Seamus McCartney, Head of Product and Strategy and Place at Lendlease, delve into how we can create adaptive local communities, what the community of the future might look like, and how we can make resources more available and communities more self-reliant. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am Paula Joy, and on behalf of IKEA and Vivid Ideas Exchange, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to this special In Conversation, where we will, dis where we will discuss the future of design, exploring how we need to rethink design in response to urbanisation, technology and the evolution of home and community. We're at a pivotal moment in time. Today, neighbourhoods and communities are playing a crucial role in the everyday lives of everyday Australians. The idea of having a home away from home is more important than it's ever been, with over half, 51% of Australians agreeing that their home goes far beyond their physical house and 46% consider the neighbourhood in which they live part of their house. This is a huge shift in the cultural uh, landscape of Australians. So how do we rethink design of communities, homes, and the things that live within our homes to create a positive future for the collective? One where the world is a better place because of and not despite how we consume things. It's a fascinating and important conversation, one that we hope educates and inspires you to look at your own neighbourhood and home in different ways. At the end, we'll open up the conversation to you and we look forward to your contribution. Until then, if you want to join this social conversation, please do. The handle is at IKEA underscore Australia or hashtag IKEA Australia. Now, guiding us through today's discussion is a panel of inspirational thought leaders. And in the spirit of democracy and thinking outside the square, I'd like to invite each of them to introduce themselves. And I want to, uh, you to answer, guys, for me. What's the piece of design, tech, furniture, gadget, building material that's changed your lives mm -hmm. forever? First. Dr. Taya Brezhek, she's a professor of spatial theory for the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome. Thank you, Paula. Um, yeah, Taya Brezhek, professor for spatial theory at UTS. Sounds very complicated, sounds very abstract. Is a little bit abstract, but not so complicated. It's, so I'm not a designer, I don't make spaces. I think about spaces, and I think about how other people have thought about spaces, and I write about space. So that is my major um, occupation. And I'm also a director of the UTS, IKEA and UTS Future Living Lab. That is a design collaboration between the School of Design and IKEA. And it's an innovation lab where we think about the future of living in all its diverse constellations. The gadget. Well, yeah. The, that has changed my life Yes, forever. the piece of design that's changed your life forever. You know, there are, of course, so many. But I would probably say, um, as I lead a kind of nomadic life like so many of us, it would be Skype. I think it would be Skype. Hmm. So I can connect with family. I can connect with friends and I remember being overseas at conferences and this and that with having a small child at home and being able to Skype with her was incredibly emotional and connecting. So I would say it's a Skype, yeah. It's a good answer. Uh, now next to you is no one. <laughs> so I'm just going to just put this little plant here uh, and that is Mr. Jason Grant, who is an author, creative consultant, interior prop stylist extraordinaire, the nicest man 
now possibly the nicest, most stressed out man, who is, is moments away in a taxi. So when he does arrive, we will be giving him a very big rock star welcome. So that's Mr. Jason Grant for, for the moment. And sitting next to Jason uh, is Seamus McCartney. He's Head of Strategic Product and Place Development at Lendlease. Welcome, Seamus. Thank you very much. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, I am Seamus. Uh, that's a really long-winded title again. Uh, I, I work for a big developer, as you might know, but my joy is I get to work between the, the face of development and design. So in, in real simple terms, we work very early on trying to work out why we're doing something, creating problems, which I'm sure everyone resonates with here, how we might solve those. Um, what elements we're going to bring to create something, and, and more often than not now, how do we work with communities and create senses of belonging in places as cities do evolve and those stats that you talked about mm. are broader. Um, technology. Can a brick be a bit of technology? <laughs> Can it? So I, I would probably call it brick, and, and the reason for that for me is that uh, early on, I've always fascinated with tactility and how things look, but I think in the cities that we're delivering globally at the moment, there's probably quite a lack of tactility in how spaces feel. Uh, and, mm. you know, they probably in modernism drove us away from how things are nice to be. And so for me, that's, that's one thing. I like it. A brick. How are you going to beat that, Tiffany? Yes. <laughs> Last but not least at all, best hair in the room. Uh, Tiffany Buckins, who is the head of interior design for IKEA Australia. Welcome. Thank you, Paula. It's uh, really good to be here uh, and speak about such an important topic. Um, as Paula said, I'm the head of interior design for IKEA Australia, and it's actually really difficult to really summarize what it is that I do. But ultimately, um, my values are very closely aligned with IKEA's vision, which is to create a better everyday life at home for the many people. Um, when it comes to technology, I actually can't say that it's technology that's impacted my life at home. It's actually a piece of furniture. Um, and of course, it's uh, the IKEA Stockholm sofa, which I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it's lush. It's velvet, it's extraordinarily deep, it has lots of cushions on it. And I think what makes that um, so meaningful is that it's actually a place for myself and my husband and my two Boston Terriers to really come together at the, uh, at the end of a long busy day and cuddle up and just kind of decompress and, you know, really relax. Mm. Those I, are the meaningful moments. I, I, on a Friday afternoon, you've just painted a very nice picture <laughs> for the weekend ahead. Um, I want one of those sofas. I think it's got to be the record player for me. Mm. I think. That's so retro, isn't it? But mm -hmm. I think the It's so retro. It is. That it's futurist. Already, That's it. I, 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 know. I, mean, I am a trendsetter, Taya. Yeah. It's no. coming Now, back. as anointed by a professor. <laughs> Oh, there you I'm going to take that into the weekend. So let's begin. Let's begin. And I'm going to come back to you, Tiffany. Each year, IKEA releases a Life at Home report. Now, it's a massive piece of research. You gather insight from 22,000 people across 22 markets around the globe. So... What does that research say about the future community? Yeah, uh, really good question. Um, it actually gives us so much insight. And I think one of the first stats that I'd like to share with you from the report is actually centered around the fact that one in three people across the world actually feel more at home uh, with places that actually sit within the, without um, outside of the physical compounds of what we would call a home. And we've actually seen those numbers significantly increase over the years. So back in 2016, this number sat at 20% within the cities. And now it's at an astonishing 35%. So we see this trend continuing to grow. Um, another insight that we've gained from this is that the future community, um, activities that would typically be happening within the home are actually extended beyond the home. And not only will this become more prominent in the future, but it's also happening today. So a third of all people, um, so a third of you, actually take your showers in places outside your home uh, multiple times during the week. Mm. Uh, so it tells us a lot about the extension of the home. 
through our research, and this is probably the piece that I'm more interested in, is that we've identified five core emotional needs that are actually attached to the home. And the reason why I find this so important is that for once and for all, we actually have a little bit of a tangible definition as to what home means to people. So I'll talk about some of those needs. The first one actually is around privacy. And it's not in the context of what we would normally consider to be privacy, you know, as far as pulling down your blinds or locking the doors. It's really about um, that ability to be able to have a choice as to where and when we choose to disconnect. So when I think about myself, um, it's really about putting on those noise-canceling headphones, or maybe even just um, you know, disappearing uh, out in the backyard for a few minutes, um, where it really starts to show us that that whole need of privacy can start to happen outside the home. The next need, emotional need, is centered around security. And this is the feeling of feeling safe and grounded within your space. And you start to probably see how that doesn't necessarily have to apply to the typical four walls that we have within our home. Then we have comfort, and this is really about being content and at ease with our surroundings. Next is about ownership, and I think typically we would actually associate this with owning, an, owning a home. That is, after all, the Australian dream, but really it's about having a sense of control over the space and the place that we live in. And last but not least, and I would say probably the most important emotional need, is actually attached to that sense of belonging. So having this feeling that you're a part of a group that actually accepts you, um, but then also being in a place that you can relate to and it reflects your personality. For people, these emotional needs, they have to be fulfilled, whether it's within their home or outside. And we can actually see this starting to extend into our neighborhoods and our future communities. Knowing this actually helps us to define what the feeling of home actually looks like and allows us to connect with home regardless of where we are, if it's in a hotel room or even at work or in the local cafe. So now that we have a better understanding as to what some of, the, some of the needs are associated with home, we also know now that space is no longer a priority. From our report, we know that 64% of all Australians and actually global respondents would rather live in a small place in the most amazing location rather than a big home and maybe a location that's not so ideal. That's really interesting. In those emotional, in those emotional responses, is there one that is more important than, than the others? Is can you rank them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hands down, the feeling of belonging, mm. um, that sense of of um, being wanted and being a part of a community, um, and also um, knowing that you can be yourself and be authentic. I guess belonging is also the most portable mm. of those emotions. And I might just jump now to you, Seamus. Yeah. You, Lendlease is obviously a giant in property development. That is your business. Uh, so you really are on the coalface in the forefront of developing and building the cities and the communities of the future. So how are you going about creating this sense of belonging? Yeah, and, and, and it's a great point about creating the communities of the future because to be able to understand a project that might go for 10 to 20 years mm. you have to have a position which insights like yours help you set the tone for what that might be and hands down belonging is the key issue that is out there at the moment um, and there's positives and negatives to that as well and I, you know we're all on social media and I'm sure we all understand sometimes how isolating social media can be as a problem in society so people are searching for belonging um, Another issue that's related along is loneliness as yeah. well. And we know in the UK that 10 million people just in London, the greater London area, feel lonely. So how do you deal with that in terms of community building and setting up infrastructure? Mm. Um, look, the, the way that we would approach that is looking at both the hardware and the software that you deliver when you're delivering a development, very um, simple terms. But hardware being the assets, the apartments, the parks, but the software, how do you connect people together? And what are the things you put in place to make that work? Um, one of our really big developments in London is called Elephant Park. Um, and one of the problems we found after the first year was that the new people coming to the area 
weren't interacting with the people that lived around the development. So mm -hmm. investing in something called um, Hi, I'm Elephant, which is the group that connects people together, has been an outstanding success. And the benefit for it has actually been for local retailers because they were connecting people down with independent small retailers and, and that starts to spurn a community. Um, one more I'd say around that for us is looking at how technology works with our day-to-day -day, uh, interactions with people. So most of you now use PayWave or your phone to pay for something. You're no longer handing money to someone and getting that in return. You're less likely to put into someone's eye and, and say hello. So how those simple interactions work at a micro scale within cities are very important to how community builds and how you build belonging. And how, how does the process work? Do you start with how are we going to build belonging and then build that into the project? Yep. Or is it often in hindsight that you say, okay, now we need to plug this hole or, or create that sense? There's both, I would say, because mm -hmm. such long projects need refresh over time. Um, but Darling Square, which is starting to open now, will be fully open in September. Um, we started with uh, making our development managers go out on the street and understand what exists already mm -hmm. as, a, as a need within the Haymarket. And for those that know that site where the old um, entertainment centre was, it was in the middle of the Haymarket, UTS and Piermont and Ultimo, so innovation precincts and Darling, Darling Harbour. So by setting the tone of who's there already, you can start to get some sort of authenticity around the place you're delivering, mm -hmm. but then looking towards who's there and who's coming. So. In the case of that one, we got 100 students together to critique our landscape plans and our plazas and our retail um, at a marketing agency, actually, with lots of pizza and drinks. Uh, and, and, and they uh, gave us some harsh truths, I would say, uh, things that we didn't understand that might be relevant for them. And of course, the 19, 20-year-olds are the future in a lot of spaces, uh, and, and, and they help us create a better place. With security, which was another of your yep. of your um, needs, I, I know that there's a, a building in Alexandria that's recently been spoken about in regard to how its landscaping yep. has actually become the security for that building. It doesn't look it, but it's impossible to drive anything into the building. You can't drive a truck at it. I'm talking mm. about genuine security threats. Are you looking at, at ways in, in your developments of using things like that? I thought that was so interesting, rather than like Parliament House as a fence around it, yeah. using landscaping and what sort of things are you doing in that regard? I'll, so I'll go to Elephant Park and maybe not the driving the car in, but um, passive security, so overlooking. Mm -hmm. and, and for those that know Jane Jacobs and, and the sort of work that's been put there in New York years ago, um, you know, it, Females have different conditions in public space than males do. So how do you create places that have overlooking and people don't feel like they're isolated and not seen in space is a huge challenge in mm. many cities and different in different locations as well. So um, Elephant Park, it was about getting front doors on streets, balconies where people are there, small retailers that were going to be there all the time. So you're overlooked. Now, consequence of that is that people are at their front door and grow belonging and all the sort of fulfilment that you get out of knowing your neighbour as well. Mm. Yeah, it's very, it's such an, it's such a big topic. Huge. Huge topic. Uh, Taya, I, I might move to you now. As mm -hmm. part of, you spoke about the IKEA and uh, UTS Future Living Lab. Could you perhaps take us through some of the work and ideas that have come out of that lab and how you see that influencing the future community? Well, the lab, we founded the lab in November, so we're still very young and we're still in its first year of also defining what exactly is it that IKEA and UTS can do together in terms of thinking about how we can live together better now and better in the future. So it's an interdisciplinary design collaboration between interior architecture and product design. It has a strong educational focus which means that we work with young emerging designers with our students our second and third year students we bring them together into short and very intensive design studios where we look at different um yeah topics so the the last two projects we did was the first one was the future of the living room and we were looking at how are we living with technology and how can we create community, uh, spending quality time together in the home, together with new technologies. 
And what we learned from the students was that they are missing in the family home quality time being spent mm. together. Mm. They are missing conversations being had in the home. Mm. And when we asked why is that, even if you're sitting together in the living room, they say, well, we might sit together in the living room, but each person is on their own mobile device. So in actual fact, while we are physically together, we are not mentally and spiritually together. Mm. So in terms of a sense of belonging and well-being, that is not very positive, is it? So the students all designed um, objects, large objects, small objects, interactive objects that would help to bring people together rather than separate them. So this was very exciting and it was a new knowledge for us older people because we didn't see it in that way. Um, what were one of the things they designed? Oh, one of, one of I'm the... So far. One of the Hand it over. It was really fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, we also had, we presented that um, at the MCA in the context of the IKEA Democratic Design Days, yeah, last, last year, mm. yes. And we had two amazing designers from IKEA Sweden come to critique the students. And they were very direct and very, um, yeah, very critical and very inspirational. It was absolutely fantastic for the students. So one of the objects was an interactive textile cloud, beautifully shaped, really like a cloud, and sort of round seating around it that would mold into the floor. And this cloud would change, would have a soundscape, a lightscape, and a scentscape. And all those would interact depending on who was joining in the circle. So you can see that the idea behind it was really the campfire. Yeah? So we want to sit around something that has a presence, that has a warmth, that has an emotive presence. So that was, a, that was one of the objects that was very touching in a way for us and was also beautifully designed. And the two designers from Sweden were saying, well, this is amazing, but maybe not only for the home, maybe for a school maybe for a hospital, maybe as a kind of healing environment, maybe in public space. And this is where the Future Living Lab is becoming, is becoming very exciting because we can now see that there's a direct relationship between the micro, which is the domestic, mm -hmm. and the macro, and seems this is something yeah. that I think we will uh, have some more conversations about. So. So how does the micro, how does the life at the domestic scale influence what happens in the public sphere? So what can we do, Tiffany and, you know, uh, what can we do who are very much focused on the domestic scale to make people live together in a very positive way? And how can this then influence public space and living together at a larger scale in terms of community? And I think to be able to build a community, you have to have a sense of what community is. Yes. And I think we are very much losing a sense of what community is. And community starts in the home. Mm. So that was one of the, that was one of the, and the second project is very quickly, uh, last one was the future of sleep. And there we found that students immediately were saying, yeah, but we don't only sleep at home. Mm. Yeah? So we said, well, where else do you sleep? Well, we want to have a little sleeping pod at work, for instance. Uh, we have a very long commute to university. We would like to be able to sleep on public transport, but we want security, we want comfort, we want privacy. So how do we do that? Then people were saying, students were saying, well, but we are thinking into the future in the future living lab. So how about sleeping in autonomous vehicles? So we were looking at vertical sleeping, sleeping in autonomous vehicles, sleeping at work, in work breaks, etc., etc. And so we realized that when we talk about the future of sleep, we also talk about the future of mobility and future of infrastructure, and we talk about the future of work. And that is very exciting. So we're very much going into that direction of um, that direct, direct relationship between the micro and the macro, and um, the challenges of how to build a community, how to experience community, and maybe 
in 2019 how to learn to know what community can be. Such a, 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 again, such a broad, broad base for discussion. I think I probably want to jump to Barangaroo on the basis of micro, well. macro. Really I nice. think that it's an incredible world-class yep. uh, precinct in Sydney. Congratulations, it is amazing. And it is probably the first uh, example that we've had in, in Sydney of how do you take the home and bleed it out into the community. So if you would just like to jump on oh, that. Look, and, and the research you're doing absolutely links into what we're seeing in the commercial space as well. And that is that commercial office space, um, if you deliver great office space, it's actually a human resources solution for people. And that is around talent. So great offices get talent to come and work for those businesses. And what we tried to do at Brangaroo was bring uh, the ground plane, the retail, and the ability for you to inhabit that as place of your work rather than just up in your tower and your, mm. your office. But what's been fascinating there is people start belonging to that. So when you now ask people, where do you work? Normally they would lead with their business, in my case, Lendlease. But what we find now is that people lead with, well, I work at Brangaroo for PwC. And it's just that subtle change that people always want to state where they belong to, mm. plus then the detail around that. Um, look, workplace is changing hugely, but not just in furniture and how we do those things, but also the ability to work in your office four days a week and somewhere else. So what you might not know is actually we have a slice of Barangaroo out in Manly called the Home Office. So what we've done there is said, well, not everyone wants to come into the office four days a week, five days a week. Um, so in conjunction with all the partners there, we've actually opened a small office there where you can book to work in a single desk. So it's co-working in a sense, or, or a bit like WeWork or others, but it's for the partners that belong to that precinct as well. So you end up mixing with the people that you might mix with at work as well, and it's just a different way of working. Um, what, I, what I think the next stage is, is how we really do interface um, three days a week in the office and two days somewhere else. And that, and that is emerging uh, quickly and how our communities and our smaller satellite places deal with that is a, is a great opportunity. I mean, the area was dead. And it really, I think even when it was being built, there was scepticism yep. as to how this was going to take what had always been a sort of a stagnant part of the yep. city. What do you think was, was, what was the pixie dust? in that? So three bits of pixie dust and, and one I was reminded, we went to Wellama on uh, Tuesday night, which is a digital welcome to country, uh, which has been announced and, and, and first showing was on Tuesday night under the cutaway in Barangaroo. Mm -hmm. Go and have a look at it, it's pretty incredible. Um, you know, there was always a story that was there and that was the Aboriginal land that was there and has been for 40,000 years mm -hmm. uh, that helped inform the tetraform of how it goes. So Barangaroo Heads Park is the shape it was before it was turned into a big slab of concrete. Mm -hmm. um, two, uh, we approached Barangaroo uh, as a new financial district for Sydney. And the point of that was to ensure that big business wasn't leaving Sydney so that they could have a place to work and that helped us redevelop there. But what that meant is we had to rethink how the ground plan and everything worked. Mm -hmm. um, and the pixie dust that really connects Barangaroo is really boring. It's the basement underneath. So there's three towers, but it's the big combined basement underneath where all the deliveries go, all the waste, mm. all the harbour turbines, everything that's there is removed from the ground plane so that you can walk around and enjoy and utilise any of the spaces that are there. And then it's overlaying things. You, you, you'll notice when you go there, there's very few stainless steel seats. And the point of that is stainless steel seats are really cold on your bum in the middle of winter like today. Yeah. So if you want to linger somewhere, it's much nicer to sit on, on timber. That requires maintenance, and you would know much more about that than I, um, but that investment in time actually creates more community because people do go down and linger. And it's one of my favourite things seeing, um, dare I say it, older people coming to Barangaroo and just sitting there and watching the world go by. Um, not timber, but concrete. If you go to Barangaroo House, the best public seat in Sydney exists in front of Barangaroo House. It's a beautiful concrete seat onto a little bit of lawn 
you to sit there, the rows from there, people having a drink behind you, but it's a public gesture that allows you to participate without having to pay. Mm. And that is a really key thing for creating great places. It's true there's never any trucks there. So you've actually created a rock stadium. That's right. And underneath, that's, I, that, I had no idea. And, and the other point, just for those in the room that are interested, there's no, the foyers don't open onto the roads, so they don't block the streets being real streets. They actually open onto little laneways which are pedestrianised. And what that means is you can have the tiny retailers in that space mm. that are the front door to a precinct to be able to trade and they can put their little timber seats out the front and do that sort of stuff instead of a vast lobby, which we all know is kind of a waste of space. It's required for certain reasons, but only for that 9am crush coming in and that 5 o'clock crush coming out. Mm. And big pieces of art. Big pieces. We do like a flag at Barangaroo, but that's we, we, we love we love that. And big pieces of art. Well, on tiny on tiny spaces, Tiffany, you spoke about how space is now not something that we mm. aspire to in the home. We're moving into cities. Homes are getting smaller. What are you doing uh, on the on the coal face of retail? I guess to help people deal with that smaller space and also still have the sanctuary that sometimes larger homes allowed for? Yeah. Um, I think there's probably a little bit more research that we have that actually support uh, our thought process behind the tiny spaces. And that's actually around sustainability and affordability. Um, ultimately, we know from our Life at Home report that 67% of all Australians actually feel that we're not ready for the population growth. Yep. And they consider affordable housing and sustainable living as actually being the key components when it comes to a future com community. Um, and because of this, we know that urbanization is actually one of the big challenges when it comes to affordable housing. And it actually is conducive to this feeling of loneliness that you've described, Taya. Um, so our solution to this is actually around co-living uh, co um, and really creating spaces where uh, we can combat that challenge to affordable living, um, but then also create this feeling of family. Mm. So one um, potential that we're looking at is using um, plans and spaces a little bit differently. And so for IKEA, we'll continue obviously to um, develop multifunctional furniture that meets the needs of the many, but we also need to consider this in the context of space. So an apartment of the future, for example, take your typical rectangular design. Um, both ends of the apartment could be a private space, which we know is so important when it comes to the emotional needs. Both ends of those apartments, they would require a separate entrance. And then in the center could actually be the public space that both families are actually using and interacting with. So what this could look like is the shared space would actually be the kitchen, the living room, the dining room, and perhaps a work area. And then the private spaces would be the bedrooms and perhaps an area to be able to gather. When we think about what uh, the shared spaces could entail and what needs come along with that, it could include things like um, in the kitchen space, having dual sinks, uh, having integrated appliances such as you know really small washing machines to be able to take care of socks and underwear um, aside from a laundry service, um, having cooktops that are actually mobile that aren't um, taking valuable space within a bench top, mm. and then of course allowing for future advancements when it comes to digital technology um, and how we actually clean our room and making sure that we accommodate for those needs. And then within the shared space, um, it's also taking care of the living room area. So what we would normally describe as a living room today, in the future could also include uh, the dining function and the work function. And we could easily accommodate this with um, soft tactile furniture that actually converts from a sofa into a chair or um, tables that actually extend or fold up into desk when you need that um, type of function within the space. 
Um, I think most importantly, what this challenges us to do is really look at how we run our business and how we actually expand into people's lives in a little bit of a different way. Um, in addition to the Life at Home report, we also spend a lot of time going into people's homes. Uh, we've visited 500 homes within Australia. And what we do through this research is we really seek to understand what are the frustrations that are happening within the home of today and what are the dreams of the home of tomorrow. And we use that research to actually develop products and services that can really connect people with those five emotional needs that I spoke about earlier. Um, of course, there's plenty that we have within our range that really meets that demand today. I think about um, these amazing SCOTUS panels that we have, and I don't expect you to know what they are, but they're a pegboard solution. And they hang on the wall. Um, not only are they a beautiful feature to any small space, um, but they also sub uh, support sound um, and act as a little bit of a sound barrier within this space. And they can be customized with shelves um, and pegs and hooks to actually act as an additional storage space on what would traditionally be um, an unused wall. We also have fabric headboards, which of course help us with noise pollution and sound absorption. Uh, and then most excitingly, um, we've actually worked with universities in Europe and Asia around an air purifying curtain. And it works just like photosynthesis found in nature. And I think what's so cool about this is that it actually is activated by both indoor an outdoor light, uh, so really cost-effective and easy to actually have fresh air within your home. Uh, we're also continuously working on the technology piece where we have smart home, uh, where you can actually control your lighting from your mobile device, which isn't necessarily new technology, but we also have um, our anticipated uh, Symphonisk launch coming, which is our collaboration with Sonos, where we've taken um, sounds um, to really elevate what that could be within a home. And so we've integrated that into a book uh, sound speaker and um, a sound lamp. So we're constantly on this journey of really trying to understand all of the activities and needs that are happening within the home so we can provide solutions for today and also for the future. Yay, there's Jason. Come on. <laughs> let, let me take a plan. Jason, you, uh, you were denoted by this lovely plant <laughs> because you were most missed. Thank you. Take a Sorry, breath. Sorry, everyone. Have a glass of water. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Jason Grant. Uh, you've been m most missed. Would you like a moment before I throw you a question? I'm going to give Maybe you... Maybe just a little I'm minute. I'm going to give yeah. you a second. Um, I tell you, I just thought, just touching on, on what you said earlier about how the sense of home is, is fading, you know, that's in recession. How, what consumer behaviours do you think need to change to to re-establish the importance of home as part of the community? I think what Tiffany is saying, with the new focus or a new research area of co-living and sharing is extremely exciting. And I think that also uh, we can take that sort of as a, as, a, as a junction point and we can say, and we can say the shared living in the apartment, but if we take that into a kind of lend lease, mm. large development, mm. then I think what we might want to say is, let's look at local practices, let's look at hyper-local practices. Mm. So we have the global challenges of sustainability, of smaller spaces, etc. Um, and then we have a local thinking and a hyper-local thinking. And this means that rather than designing community, which is something that I'm maybe a little bit skeptical about, we enable the creation of community because people create community. Mm. And there's a limit to mm. design. Design enables, but people create community. So if we have those large developments, we imagine a co-sharing, and very happily so, um, but then what about having shared spaces that would be, it would be a market, it would be a skills exchange market, 
it would be a bicycle repair shop, it would be something where children can meet, it would be a cultural hub, it would be a pop-up gallery, it would be a pop-up live music venue, etc., etc., etc. And I think, and this would be, or also, you know, we are sort of thinking in the lab at the moment about um, very localized, very small recycling stations, for instance. So what about if people can do a little bit of plastic recycling where they live, they can turn it into a product, for instance, if we think about open source design, etc., etc. So there are many, many, many possibilities to move, to take those ideas from the domestic scale, to take them to a local and hyper-local yeah. strategy, and therefore have a very positive impact on the macro scale. Mm. Um, Seamus, I'm interested in how big business, so looking again at, at, at Barangaroo yep. and that being a, you know, a, a commercial centre, how, how much do you need to be leading them to water in respect of you, these are the changes you need to make? I mean, I remember when open plan was sort of something that was respect. Yeah. How, 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 how are they there? Are they halfway there or are they nowhere near it? Oh, look, and, I, and I'll go to, to Darling Square and it's a fascinating uh, picture you paint of the things that might make something work because a lot of the time people intuitively know what they want, they just don't know how to articulate it. Mm. So being able to unlock that, and I think that's probably all our business, is, is really important. Um, Darling Square, after talking to the community, there were five things they wanted. So they wanted mahjong tables. So we're delivering them in the public domain. Just a really small thing, but we know the Chinese community is going to work on that. But at the Darling Exchange, which is a Kengo Kuma design building, some people might have seen it, it, it wraps around with timber. It's a market hall with 13 stalls at the bottom, mm. a, a restaurant in the mezzanine, two levels of City of Sydney Library, one level's technology IQ hub where they're going to hold events and that sort of stuff, two levels of childcare above that, yeah. and a bar for all of us at the top. And, and that was in strong response to what the community mm. asked us for. Mm. Um, what it took was a lot of working with different stakeholders to be able to deliver that mixed use. And that, that is one of the challenges that Australia faces over the next period of time is actually everyone working together for the outcome of the greater good rather than their own. Um, are they there yet? I think no one's ever there because you know open plans now being whispered again about whether that's right or wrong uh, and, and statistics are now coming out after about a decade of it being in predominance that maybe the noise of open plan affects work productivity. Um, so those sort of things are happening. And, and as an aside, I think um, if anyone's interested in statistics, read uh, Deloitte's report on millennials and Gen Zs. It's a fascinating read about what people want today and how you might answer that in the future. Mm. Um, because some of the answers in there or some of the things that are being said uh, are the absolute opposite to the things that are normally said about millennials and Gen Zs. So I think it's very important that we read about what people's hopes and dreams are, because by answering those, you normally get three quarters of the way there. Jewel, take that down. Deloitte. That's homework. <laughs> oh, and I've got one more. Yes. Like a Bosch, which is Bosch the brand. brand. If you want to have an idea in one minute of what a connected lifestyle looks like, great little video. It's, it's ridiculous, but it, it sort of explains where we might be in five years of having everything connected. I don't want to live there, but it's a, it's a different world. <laughs> Great. Uh, Jason, welcome. Thanks. Um, I would like you to, if you could, touch on uh, the resilience trend. If you could perhaps explain what the resilience yeah. trend is and how you see that affecting the future of community. Sure. Just a little backstory. I subscribe to an amazing trend forecaster in London called the Future Laboratory. Um, I guess they are more focused on trends that are more intellectual, emotional, as opposed to, hey, let's run by pink, let's do this. It's not really about what we're purchasing, but about how we're thinking. Yes. And they recently, in one of their emails, discussed the notion of resilience as a big trend. And I guess in that, they're talking about people, I guess, responding to uncertainty with the future. I actually just saw that movie yesterday, 2040. If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing movie that's um, 
it's a projection of what the world will look like in 2040 based on a really great term that I learned, fact dreaming. So everything that they've predicted in the movie in 2040 already exists. Mm. We just have to do it and use it. So resilience for me is about being adaptable. And I guess the best way to be adaptable is being open to learning. I kind of understand the irony of talking about resilience to after my morning this morning. <laughs> if I'm anything, I am adaptable. So I think in terms of creating homes and communities of the future, I think something that's really important is that we're stronger together. Yeah. So banding together, working together, all being on the same page, all being open to learning new things. I think information um, on how we buy things and do things in our home is, is actually really important. And I have mentioned to the team before that what I love about IKEA is they sell products, but they actually offer solutions. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, and I think there's some great examples happening in Melbourne and others, like the Nightingale housing yep. model, which is worthwhile looking at if uh, anyone here wants to. Um, mm. you know, and that's a co-creation model, and there's assembly as well. There's a few of them emerging there, and they're now moving into that co-living space. And, yeah. and when we're saying co-living, so everyone's clear, that's student housing for everyone. So you might have a bedroom, you might have a small studio apartment, but the living spaces are there to be able to be used. And that is a, a, a quite, a, quite a trend everywhere else in the world. Um, unfortunately, our policies around how tax works for large developments and deliver to rent, build to rent are happening, are, are a challenge, but that I think will be solved over the next period of time. Uh, Taya, this might be a, a good time to just talk about, obviously, you know, government has, has long funded mm. research, but in, particularly in some of the work that you do, mm. you, you have large companies mm. that are funding research and, and opportunities and laboratories for your students. Yes. How important do you think that collaboration on Jason's point of coming together is for industry to fund students? and projects? I think the idea of uh, industry and academia collaboration in terms of research and development is not a new one. This is very traditional and we know that it moves things forward. We know it moves things forward fast and often in unexpected ways. So it needs courage from both sides. It needs a partner who is open. It needs a partner who is not after very quick and very easy solutions because research is never um, easy and very often it's also not quick because you go through many different iterations and optimizations. So a partner who is courageous, who is open-minded and um, who is looking for unexpected solutions and is looking even for questions that we don't even know yet we are going to ask in two months' time. Um, and so the Future Lab is working together with IKEA. We developed it together. So it was not, an, it was not, a, not a thing of we give you so and so much money and therefore we want this result but it was more like, let's do something together, let's think about what this something could be. And this something is very much project-based, is very much to empower young designers by working in small groups. Uh, we are a mass university, UTS is a very large university, but with such a dedicated lab that has its own site, which is also very important for the sense of belonging. Yeah, I can't say it often enough. The sense of belonging is important also for students. I'm part of something. There is an identity building. It's an empowering for the students. We are part of something special. We're a small group working together with dedicated academics and with guest critics from industry who give input and, of course, who are inspirational leaders. So it's a real gift for the students and it's also fantastic for us academics because we can pursue avenues to, a, um, to an extent and to a, a scale that maybe we usually would not be able to do. Of course, teaching students in that kind of masterclass situation, intensive studio situation, is also a real joy because we have students who send us an expression of interest why they want to be part of a particular studio. And of course, once they arrive in the studio, we sit around a large table and we start to work together. So this is, a, and it's actually very fast. 
then if you're, uh, if you're on the same page. In two weeks' time, I'm taking 14 students to Almwold to the IKEA headquarters, and we're going to work on a dedicated project there. We're going to be in the makerspace. They're going to prototype. We're going to have introductions into IKEA design methodology. Again, it's always between interior architecture and product design students. They work extremely well together. Um, and everybody's very excited. I haven't been there before. Students haven't been there. So it's going to be five days sort of in IKEA land because we're staying at the IKEA hotel. We're going to eat in the IKEA restaurant, which I hear is very good. I've heard that the hotel is really good. Tiffany said I have to I have to have a look at the drawer next to the bed, so I have remembered that. So I will do that. We will document everything. Um, and and to learn, and we will meet with IKEA designers, etc., etc. So it's a fabulous thing. You'll have to get used to the. What, what is someone will know here? What is the thing in Sweden always with coffee? You have they have every single time you have coffee, Pika. you have to eat. Pika. There. Oh yeah, I'm not against that. Yeah, that's what has to happen. Yeah. So every time somebody offers you coffee, get excited because it comes with food. Something sweet. I or hope. mainly, but mainly. sometimes herring. So herring is also great. <laughs> So, so what I'm trying to say with that long story, um, what I want to say with that is that those collaborations work really well if you have shared values. Mm. No? And if those shared values, and, I'm, and I will also talk about ethics here and an ethical way of working and of an, an ethical work of think, uh, way of thinking about design, then you can really do great things together. Mm. Jason, we've been talking about community and how home is bleeding into community and community into home. Just even on projects that you've done, projects, people's homes, offices that you've worked on, what have you seen shift? What are some of the things that you've really seen shift in people's wants and people's desires for either or? I guess when I work on interior design projects, I work a little bit more organically and I really like to get a sense of how the space is used, what they actually need. So I guess, I think people are really making more smarter decisions about, especially if they're living in a smaller space, committing to having something in your home takes up valuable real estate. So you have to really consider that it's the right option, the mm. best option. And do you think people are making sustainable choices? Have you seen a shift towards that as being something people consider when it comes to design? Or do you I think, think that they're not there yet? I think it's something that's talked about more so than action. Mm -hmm. I think we can all do more. But I think, yeah, I think it's something that's definitely being discussed. And, and I think there's more options and there's more, you know, brands are talking about it as well. And what about for you, Seamus? Do you find, is sustainability right at the top of the agenda yep. with everything you do? So for, for us, but also our customers, and I think mm. the, again, the aspiration in helping people get there, uh, Barangaroo will be carbon neutral. Uh, it is getting there and it takes time to get there. That's a pretty extraordinary thing for um, mm. you know, one of the biggest commercial outcomes. And that's driven by a whole lot of measures. We have a, an, a garbage concierge who sits down in the basement and makes sure that all the garbage is sorted, because that's important. Because every time something's spoiled by one piece of garbage that doesn't fit in mm. the right thing, it goes to landfill. Mm. So it really is about that chain of custody and how mm. things go. Um, particularly in the workplace, sustainability is hugely important. And that's you know, visible sustainability down to fresh air movements and how all those sort of things work as well. And that leads to productivity. But I would say the gro biggest growing one is social responsibility mm -hmm. uh, and, and how people work together behaviours. And that's probably the biggest sustainability push we're seeing emerging uh, at the moment and is just going to keep going. So why, uh, how individual buildings can be delivered in a, in a city and how that might plug into something that is wider is, is something that we're going to have to solve as an industry. Which is really coming back to to belonging and, and Tiffany, mm. I think it's probably a good time to just reiterate the IKEA buyback which I, service, which I think a lot of people don't understand that every piece of IKEA that goes into the world can come back to you and I'll let you 
Yeah, and I'm actually a customer of that service. Um, you can go to the IKEA Tempe store and actually submit a, um, a proposal uh, to the team about uh, IKEA furniture that you have in your home today, and they will give you a cost um, back in return. Um, you'll get an IKEA voucher uh, that you can use for 90 days to actually buy something new. And I think it's such an exciting initiative, not just from a quality perspective. Um, you'll see my 15-year-old dining room table in the IKEA Tempe store. <laughs> um, so it says a good message about um, our development process and how we build form, function, quality, and design and sustainability into everything that we do. Um, but I think also making sure that we're um, circular in our thought process and ensuring that um, our furniture doesn't go on the curbside. Uh, mm. yeah. Oh, it's, uh, I think a lot of people don't know that and I think mm. it's an incredible initiative. Now, I can't believe how quickly this hour has flown and it is now your turn. Uh, so I would like, we have charming people with microphones. So if you have a question for anyone on the panel, please don't be shy and raise your hand. I think my question's for Seamus, and you said the product was a brick. Um, we've recently built a house in the country, which yep. also included bricks from the Sandstock bricks from 1940s and 50s homes, so they were recycled yep. uh, bricks. Do you think in the future that people, certainly in building their homes, will go back to the past and, and recycle and reuse, or do you think that in the future will go more towards those products that are more technologically in that advanced era. Oh no, and, and, and I'm harping on about Barangaroo, but forgive me. Um, I'll talk about a product, cross-laminated timber. So if you go down to Barangaroo, the two small office buildings are made out of timber. I'm gonna say they're made out of timber. The floor, the columns, the structure is made out of timber. And the reason that is, is it can be totally recycled. So it's like a deck of cards and it's an eight story building. So the industry's moving that way already. Now, of course, we occupy a certain point in the industry, but that will flow down over time. Um, it's really clear to us that reuse and recycling is, is key on site. So you'll see most builders now recycle 100% of all waste that comes out of buildings. So I think the industry's already there. Mm. It's now gonna be about scale and price point, which mm. these guys know more about than, than us in that sense. Uh, and how it makes it a broad, appealing thing to customers. Um, but that cross-laminated timber is an extraordinary product. Um, and when you think about it, we have to import the timber from Austria at the moment. But if you're talking about an industry in Australia, and we do have growth forests that are now used for wood chipping, how can you repurpose that industry to start supplying things? And you'll have read about hemp and how hemp board can be used now. There are so many different things coming out now that will enable that to happen. Of course, people love old bricks uh, and how old wharf timber can be used, but I think that on scale is gonna be the issue. Because as you talked about, um, density scares people, but we all know that with the population growth we can see in particularly Sydney and Melbourne, um, the density is coming in and we see that everywhere. The issue with density is density is not necessarily done well in a lot of places. So. Um, that is the big challenge that sits out there as well. How do you interface that sustainability with density to get the right community outcomes as well? Uh, it's the holy grail of uh, development. Yeah. Another question here. Hi, um, just a question about the, uh, you mentioned the Nightingale in Melbourne. Yep. Um, af affordable housing obviously is a buzzword I'm here from the States and it's something that nobody seems to be able to solve really, really well. Yes. And that's something that really sticks out in my head suddenly about the student living, um, student housing for everyone. Can you elaborate a little bit about, I, I don't know where that project is or how far, what the challenges were, how do you talk to the, um, the, the public sector, the people that are in charge of zoning that you're trying to convince that this yep. is the right th way to go? Where do you start? Um. Well, you start the way the Nightingale teams have started. You start doing it and you, and you push it through. So, um, look, I, I, I don't know the full details around it, so I would say that, but, it, but it's about a group of people coming together early on um, and working together to deliver a building model. Now, what that does is mean they spend less on marketing and certain things. So you can reinvest that money either in a cheaper product 
or a better outcome. Um, and that's the simple premise behind it. It's generally driven by architects that are doing that on the, on the forefront and they're the, the Melbourne model is really driven by that. Now, um, that for me places a different challenge on architects in terms of what their business model is and, and how that works. Um, but really, it's about co-design. Uh, and, and I think that's probably the key thing that's coming out. And you talked about the future laboratory. One of the, one of the best pieces I've read there is about flat ages. So that the point that anyone between the ages of 55 and 75, it's pretty hard to distinguish age in that zone. They have uh, good fundamentals around money uh, and they've got differing needs and they're willing to spend that and they have a social conscious that they might not have held elsewhere. They happen to be one of the biggest take up of the Nightingale model as well because they're getting to that point. Mm. Um, your point about affordable housing uh, is a solution that needs to be found with government industry, banks, everyone. And coming from working in London for, for years and years where it was mandated that 30% was affordable housing um, with funding behind it and agencies to manage it, um, it's actually pretty easy. You just have to have that set up and we need to do that as a country across all sectors to do that. You all talked a lot about the positives of small. I just wondered if you could identify one or two of the key challenges of small and how you have overcome them or what, what the solution to those might be. Who wants to take? Jason, off you go. Yeah. I guess <laughs> on the positive side of small as a designer, stylist, I actually like working in small rooms for the simple fact that you can make them immensely more intimate more easily. So I don't think small should be a bad word. I think small can be great. Mm. So I guess that's my point of view of like, yes, there's challenges and it's harder, but also there are positives of, of making a space work easily as well. Trudy and I have three kids and, and big would be great, but we live in Balmain in a small house. Um, but that enables us to have a connection to community. Our girls can walk to the bookshop around the corner, go to Woolies, um, and I can get a bus to work and those sort of things. So I think those trade-offs uh, need to be looked at holistically. Uh, there is too small, and, and I think that's a really interesting, the tiny house movement, um, I would probably like to live in one for a week. I'm not sure I would like to live in one for a period <laughs> of time. And you can see the state government here is making rules around minimum apartment sizes for that, that point. Yeah. Now, there's a real challenge around affordability and how that works, uh, but th there is probably a point where t small is too small for a longevity of time for people to be in. But then if you go to a co-living model where maybe you have a small bedroom, small kitchenette, but a very big living room and six of them and a roof deck and a garden and a pool, when you build that all up as an opportunity, maybe that's where your little bit of small is aggregated to something much bigger. And look, that's just a, a metaphor for a community again. You know, your little house is part of something bigger. Seamus, you can see Barangaroo, can't you? You're yes. just from your house. You're yes, just constantly just checking. Know that, yeah. Just pulling open those blinds, just checking that it's okay. I think for me, um, the challenge with small, Paula, it's actually not necessarily about the space itself. It's actually about the behaviors um, that we all have in place when it comes to the possessions that we have. Uh, we know from our home visits that the number one frustration in Australia tends to be around the lack of storage and organization, hands down every time by a long shot. And I think that's actually why um, the Marie Kondo, uh, Marie Kondo uh, yeah. trend was actually so popular. But of course there's danger in that um, because now our landfills are full and Salvation Army can't take our goods anymore. Um, I think what's so fascinating about that trend though, if you really do it, it actually takes more space. Mm. So it's about the control that we have in ourselves when it comes to actually being mindful about our purchases. And then I think also um, looking at our spaces completely differently. Um, I've seen a solution recently where there's a walk-in wardrobe um, and it only takes the minimum space and by the flick of a button, your bed can actually come out from the unused space of the wardrobe. So really using innovation in our favor when it comes to interior design to be able to really maximize these tiny spaces and still be able to provide those really functional needs that we, that we require, but then also encompassing those um, emotional needs that we talked about earlier. I'd love to sleep with my clothes. 
<laughs> in your shoes. That would be a shoe. dream to just, yes, to just move it all in there. Um, I think we have time for one more, one more question. Thank you very much for the presentation. It's really thought-provoking. Um, one thing which I really wonder about is whether the future of design will take into consideration the fact that it's an aging population. Mm -hmm. For your innovative lab, it sounds like they're all young students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can we design to respond to this really important uh, fact that Australia is aging. Mm. Great question. Amazing. We're not going to be as mobile. Mm. And, you know, we need certain types of space to do certain types of things for us. Mm. Earlier I had talked about a bit of a solution um, with the two privacy areas and then having a shared community in the center. And essentially that model is based on actually bringing a family together so that you could have um, your mother and your father living on the one end of the home and then you and your children on the other end and simply having that shared space accessible through sliding doors so that you can choose to be together or choose to be in isolation. Um, and that, I think, it, it's a small, a small space model that actually integrates <clears throat> that feeling of belonging in a really positive way. And it's, it's not just about the student population. It really is about the multi-generational living that we're, we're facing in Australia today. I think also it, it goes further to, to Taya's original point about the home. As a nation, we need to, we need to keep older generations vital and within the community. That is half the problem. Any, every other, many other countries in the world, in fact most, there is no, it, it's seamless. They have jobs ongoing, they're part of the family. They're, we have a real use by date uh, in this country on age. So I think part of it is reacclimation into the community and keeping old people working and, and vital and, and you know, playing the important role that they do. And there are also very interesting alternative models of living. One is, um, is multi-generational living and one is intergenerational living. Yeah. And this would be where you would, have, um, where you would have elderly people living in very close vicinity to families with young children and where there may be some exchange in terms of child minding, exactly. et cetera, et cetera. But where you would also have um, homes for elderly people in close vicinity to kindergartens and to preschools. And we also, if we talk about a sense of well-being, then a sense of well-being is also being needed and being able to contribute. Mm. And I think it's very, very vital to say that in our um, particular uh, political system, it often seems that we are only worthwhile if we contribute through our work labor. So if we contribute to having the system run and to making the wheels run, what happens if we're not able to work anymore? We're not in the workforce anymore. Is it, is it then that we don't count anymore as, as people? So to look at models where we might not be an economic force being in the labor force, but being able to contribute through time, uh, through life experience, to particular skills, to younger people and to very young people is very important. And there are models, many models in Scandinavian countries in actual fact, um, that have looked at those, at those systems. They always go hand in hand with affordable housing models though. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, that means that perhaps the future of design really is all we need is love. Perhaps. Oh. Perhaps love. Perhaps oh, let's, finish, let's finish with John Lennon, shall we? Please thank my panelists, Taya, Jason, you, thank you for joining us. We missed you. Seamus, <laughs> Tiffany, you've been incredible. To the amazing audience, thank you for your attention. And I want you to know that your ticket price today, every cent of that will be going to Food Bank. So thank you very much for taking time out of your day for joining us and for paying it forward. Have a terrific weekend.